The good man loves Jesus. Uh, Luke chapter 1, in your Bibles, Luke chapter 1. Let me be the first uh, from the sermons here of, of December to wish you a merry, merry Christmas. The main takeaway that I'd like to leave with you this morning is that God never forgets his people. God never forgets his people. I've really grown to love the story in Luke chapter 1. In fact, I've, I was thinking over the last several days uh, during Christmas time when our kids wake up and one of the first things we do, we throw on some, some breakfast, of course, the pot of coffee is rolling, the Christmas lights are all bright. Uh, we just, we just see the presents. The kids are anticipating opening up their presents or opening or getting into their stockings, hanging on the mantle. One of the things that we do like to do as a family is read through Luke chapter 2 of the Christmas story of Christ's birth and the hope that is wrapped up in that moment. Uh, and as the last several days have been, uh, as I've been studying, I've been thinking to myself, man, you really want to start in Luke chapter 1. There's so much rich promise and beautiful words there that just point to Jesus and, and, and everything that he means to us. And so I think it is fitting that we, as we start with the Advent uh, series of messages uh, this month, uh, we want to kind of highlight uh, a couple of people uh, that often get overlooked, they get passed over, and that's uh, Zachariah and Elizabeth. And you have a, a couple here that's that been through a lot together. They've, they've grown together. Uh, and, but uh, the text says that they've had one, one thing that's really characterized their life, not only in their private life, but also in the lives of, uh, of in public, really. And that's the reality that they never had a child. And so as we look through this text together as family, as church family, I want to leave you with this overriding factor uh, or this point, the main point of the sermon is that God never forgets his people. But before we get into the text, I want to read a portion of an article that Pastor Matt had sent my way. I am very thankful that I uh, get to serve alongside uh, pastors who send verses, they send articles in the news, things that just kind of uh, enrich uh, one another throughout the week as we're uh, trudging along in, in ministry and, and serving. And Pastor Matt, uh, knowing the text of Scripture this morning, sent this uh, to me. I think it was about Tuesday or Wednesday of this week. And it's an article by Trevin Wax. My wife didn't really believe that was a real name. Uh, Trevin, Trevin Wax is a real name. <laughs> uh, but Trevin Wax wrote an article called, Lord, Save My Great-Great-Grandchildren. This was published just about five days ago. I'm going to read it, uh, just a portion of it for you right now. now. A few years ago, I was in London for a conference in honor of the greatest Baptist preacher of the 19th century, Charles Spurgeon. A highlight of that trip was visiting Spurgeon's grave together with Susanna Spurgeon and her children. Susanna is the great-great-granddaughter of Charles Spurgeon. She's a faithful believer whose family loves God and cherishes His Word. At the conference, as she addressed those in attendance, she revisited her great-great-grandfather's account of his own confession of faith, his conversion to Christ. 
nearly choking up as she read about that night that he was saved. As special as that moment was, nothing could have prepared me for the power of what came next. It was August the 1st. There we were in London, nearly 130 years after Charles Spurgeon had died, and Susanna decided to read one of the prayers he had composed for a devotional, dated that very day. Here's what Charles Spurgeon had prayed. O Lord, thou hast made a covenant with me, thy servant in Christ Jesus my Lord, and now I beseech thee, let my children be included in its gracious provisions. Will you permit me to believe this promise as made to me as well as to Abraham? I know that my children are born in sin and shapen in iniquity, even as those of other men. Therefore, I ask nothing on the ground of their birth, for we all well know that that which is born of the flesh is flesh and nothing more. Lord, make them to be born under thy covenant of grace by thy Holy Spirit. I pray for my descendants throughout all generations. Be thou their God as thou art mine. My highest honor is that thou hast permitted me to serve you. May my offspring serve you in all the years to come. O God of Abraham, be the God of his Isaac. O God of Hannah, accept her Samuel. Close quote. This was a prayer of Charles Spurgeon for his offspring, for his descendants yet unborn. And when you read those words aloud, you can't help but sense his yearning for the spiritual well-being of grandchildren and great-grandchildren. He was praying for future generations. Years have passed, decades, and more than a century, but right there, don't miss this part, but right there in London, I listened to those words read by Spurgeon's great-great-granddaughter, the living embodiment of God's answer to those prayers from the 1800s. Isn't that incredible? Like, God did not have to do that. You realize that? He did not have to answer that prayer, but he did. Charles Spurgeon never got to meet Susanna face to face, but he answered his prayer, and one day Susanna and Charles Spurgeon will meet face-to-face in heaven, not because there's anything special about the two of them, but because God's grace worked in Susanna's life as well as it worked in Charles's life. And guess what the content of their discussion will be in heaven? God's grace and answered prayer. Last week we talked about prayer and we quoted Tim Keller. and Tim Keller said, prayer makes a dent. Will you hold on to that again today, this morning? Prayer makes a dent. Now look at Luke chapter 1. I want to read the the verses that uh, we'll start off with and then I'll pray. Luke chapter 1, verse verse 5. In the days of Herod, king of Judea, there was a priest named Zechariah of the division of Abijah, and he had a wife from the daughters of Aaron, and her name was Elizabeth. And they were both righteous before God, walking blamelessly in all the commandments and statutes of the Lord. But they had no child because Elizabeth was barren, and both were advanced in years. Now, while he, that is Zechariah, was serving as priest before God when his division was on duty, according to the custom of the priesthood, he was chosen by lot to enter the temple of the Lord and burn incense. And the whole multitude of the people were praying outside at the hour of incense, and there appeared to him an angel of the Lord standing on the right side of the altar of incense." And Zechariah was troubled when he saw him. 
and fear fell upon him. But the angel of the Lord said to him, Do not be afraid, Zechariah, for your prayer has been heard, and your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son, and you shall call his name John. Now drop down to verse 24. After these days, his wife Elizabeth conceived, and for five months she kept herself hidden, saying, Thus the Lord has done for me in the days when he looked on me to take away my approach from among the people. Pray with me, will you? God in heaven, we thank you so much that you are a God who never forgets his people. Lord, you never once have forgotten any one of our prayers. We know that you love grace. It is your design to send your son into the world to bear the penalty of sin that was rightly due to us. We thank you, Father, that you're not done with us. Just like Zechariah, when he, when he uh, does not believe when he hears this message, there are many times when we act the same way, and yet you're patient towards us and long-suffering towards us. We thank you for that. We thank you that you're still working on us. So I pray that you would fill me with your spirit, that you would bless the reading and teaching of your word this morning. And I pray for all my friends here that you would just glorify yourself in each and every one. We pray all this in Christ's name. Amen. So the supporting points that I want to have in the main point that God never forgets his people. The first one, number one, God never forgets a single prayer. That's why we opened up with this illustration about Charles Spurgeon. God, there was no prerogative on God's part that he would have to answer the prayer. But God remembered a prayer long after Spurgeon was gone. And right here, we have the same example in different circumstances, in a different context, certainly, and many, many years prior to any of us being born. We must pay pay careful attention to the text to be able to understand how we can arrive at this truth that God never forgets a prayer. So we need to look at a few details to help us. So number one, Zachariah and Elizabeth were well advanced in years. That's code for, man, they were pretty old, okay? Pretty old. We don't know exactly how old, but old enough to be past the age of having children. The text says that Elizabeth is barren, and that's a word that the Bible uses to talk about that's no possibility whatsoever in man's terms that a a woman can bear a child. Now, we're also told that these two were righteous before God and walked blameless. Now, this doesn't mean that they were perfect. Don't, Don't misconstrue that. None of us are, not them, not us, not anyone. But they rather lived in integrity and walked with God. They obeyed God. They loved his commandments. Certainly they made mistakes, but they repented likely, looked to each other in their relationship with each other and just said, you know what, I was wrong and, you know, all of that. But the content of Zechariah's prayer is actually unknown. So we we look at that. In verse 13, the angel of the Lord says, your prayer has been heard, Zechariah. So some writers might think that the prayer was to have a child, that even though he was barren, that he wanted to have a baby anyway. He knew God could do the impossible things, but he still want, they wanted to have a child. Other commentators say that Zechariah was asking to, for God to send the long-awaited Messiah. Now, their son, as you know, grows up to be John the Baptist, so God does answer their prayer. But isn't it amazing that 
one can take both of those interpretations, that God does answer the prayer to announce the coming of the Messiah, but at the same time answers the prayer for them to have children. It's incredibly, incredibly neat to see that play out. This reminds me of what Paul says in Ephesians chapter 3, verse 20, Now unto him who is able to do far more abundantly than all that we ask or think, according to the power that works in us, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations. So never in their wildest dreams would they have ever imagined that, that Zechariah would have this experience of meeting Gabriel face to face in the temple, having an announcement of their prayer being answered. And what I'm seeing here in the text is a couple that, by God's grace, over many, many years, they remained faithful to God through the trial of childlessness. Sure, they, they had their arguments, I have no doubt. They're made of flesh and blood just like me and you. Arguments probably, probably even over Scripture itself. I can hear Elizabeth and Zechariah in the privacy of their own home. I can hear them saying, hey, what about Psalm 127.3? And the others say back, well, what about it? I don't remember that text. Can you tell me what it means or what does it say? And they respond, it says, behold, children are a heritage from the Lord and the fruit of the womb a reward. And sure, they likely became angry with God, as many of us all do when we struggle with trials and temptations and wondering what in the world is God doing with what we're going through right now. And even more than that, Elizabeth herself, if you look at verse uh, 25, Elizabeth carried a social stigma for not having children. All of, all of the eyes in the community were looking on her wondering when, when will God give them a child or if God will give them a child at all. It was a sign of God's blessing to have children. And I'm sure that when she, you know, went to the markets or went to run errands, she probably tried to get those errands done as quickly as possible so as to escape the eyes looking and wondering about her. And I love what she says in verse 25, the Lord looked on me to take away my reproach among the people. God took that away and gave her a child. And also, and this is a big deal to have children, they likely had conversations privately about if we don't have a child, who's going to take care of us when we get older? You see, that back then they didn't have social security. You know, you didn't, you didn't have nursing homes or living facilities or places you can go and, and be taken care of in the event that you don't have someone in your life to care for you. The hope was that they would be given a child. And the Lord said no. The Lord said no, but only for a time. Only for a time. God never forgets our prayers. Even in the face of what seems impossible, infertility, God never forgets his prayer, your prayer, mine. The hope right now, the hope is that long before this moment in the temple when the angel appeared before Zechariah, there came a time in Zechariah and Elizabeth's marriage when God so worked in a miraculous way on the mind and the heart of both of them that they accepted God's will. Isn't that what all of us want when we're dealing with trials in husbands and wife and our relationships that, that even though we can't understand God's purposes and what he's doing in the moment, that God would so work on my mind and my heart that I would faithfully trust the Lord step by step. Isn't that what we want? 
And perhaps it was over the course of many years. This is not like a light switch where you just quote a Bible verse and everything's going to be okay. It doesn't work that way. Our text says that in their, it was in their advanced age that this came to pass. And in their advanced age, the Bible still describes these two as walking blamelessly and following the Lord in all of the commandments. If I am 80 years old, I hope this is the story of my life. The story of my life that you can, I can you look back on everything that God carried you through and say, I still want to, I still want to follow the Lord. Wouldn't that be an amazing act of grace? So my friends, Zachariah and Elizabeth were not super spiritual people. They were people just like me and you. God did not forget their prayer to have a son, and God will never forget your prayers either. Prayers don't just drop off in the mind of God. He holds every one of them. Some of our prayers, he answers no. That's always going to be a possibility. Some of our prayers do not come to pass for a very long time after we pray them. Remember our illustration of Charles Spurgeon, 130 years, God held on to that prayer. God sometimes answers our prayer exactly when and how we want, and that has nothing to do with us. It's God's plan. So what I see in our text is a godly couple, by God's grace in their lives, became content with the answer no, and got up and served the Lord entrusted him. All the vi visible physical signs in their life pointed in that direction. Every, all the details that we have here point in that direction. So for us, can I ask just one question? I want, I want to ask us to maybe commit and establish another covenant between you and me and, and to the whole church. When we approach God with a request, can we actually come with him with two requests? What I mean by that is perhaps we can pray something like this. Lord, it is my desire to have fill in the blank. But if it's not your will for right now or ever, remind me that you are all I need. Satisfy me with yourself. If I have you, I have everything. So we can come to God with our requests, asking for things that are good, that we see in Scripture that are wonderful, that God delights in giving his people. We'll say, I want that, Lord, but if you do not choose to give it to me, will you give me something that's even more, infinitely more desirable of worth than that? And that's you to be guided and cared for spiritually by you. Now, there are so many other examples of this in Scripture. just don't only want to mention a few. We got way back in the book of Daniel, you have Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. They are being called upon the local government there in Babylon and Nebuchadnezzar and all of those officials, all the idolatry surrounding them and say, you know, if you do not bow down, we are going to have to kill you. This is what we do here. You either get on board with the culture or you're we're going to kill you in the fiery furnace. And their response collectively was, God is able to rescue us from this moment, but if not, we will not bow down to you. So there was something that they prayed for. Obviously, they would want God to rescue them in that moment, but their stance was, we have the Lord, and that's all we need. Whether we live or whether we die, 
we are the Lord's. The Apostle Paul, in the letters uh, to the Corinthians, he, he prayed and he asked God, will you take away this physical ailment that I'm struggling with over and over again, this thorn in the flesh, will you take it away from me? And you imagine a guy who, who is preaching the gospel all, alo- all over the world, and he, probably in his mind he's th- he thinks, if I could just have this physical ailment taken away from me, my ministry could be more effective, I could preach more boldly, I could be out there risking my life in, in much greater ways for the, for the gospel. But, but God's answer to that prayer was what? My grace is sufficient for you. My power is made perfect in weakness. And of course, probably the most helpful example of this is Christ in the Garden of Gethsemane. Isn't it interesting that the Son of God, Jesus Christ, even had a prayer that was not answered. Isn't that, isn't that wild? Where he's praying in the garden, he's asking the Lord, God the Father, if there's any other way that this cup can be passed, let that be. But if not, he answers, not your will, but thine, O Lord. But we don't even have to go far, that far back either. Way back in the Old Testament, the name Zechariah, the, the man that we're considering this morning, his name actually means God remembers. Isn't that kind of cool? That right here in the text, uh, a text which describes that God will never forget you and he never forgets one of your prayers, however private those prayers may be. Here in our text, God chooses to raise up a man to be a priest at a certain time. They cast lots. He goes into the temple. It's obviously God's design and and sovereignty in that situation where he's the one going to be there. And it's also by God's design that he has a name that he carries with him everywhere he goes, and it's God remembers. The thought actually struck me this morning as I was singing, and as the testimonies were were given, the, the guy who led me to Christ, his name was Zechariah too. And I just thought, Lord, that is so perfect. That is so cool. God remembers the teenager who wants to have good friends. God remembers the dad who just wants to get a job to provide for his family. God remembers you, mom, when you pray for your children to know Christ. God remembers your prayers through illness, through sadness, through anger, through frustration, or even in facing death itself. When God brings us home, he does not forget all of the conversations and experiences of his grace. They make heaven all the sweeter. Psalm 56, 8, you have kept count of all my tossings and you've put my tears in your bottle. Are they not in your book? There's an infinite storehouse in the mind of God. That's what that that verse really teaches. All of them are taken care of, it says. And that's why we Go to 1 Peter 5, 7. We transition from knowing about what he can do, what he, his wisdom and his omniscience and being able to hold all of those prayers together. And then when we experience something that is uncomfortable, we lean into 1 Peter 5, 7 that says, casting all of your anxieties on him because he cares for you. Cast all of them and he will keep all of them and he cares for you. Psalm 73, 23 through 26. I love this passage because it, it really it talks about a guy 
much like Zechariah and Elizabeth, can't quite understand exactly all of their experiences. They see the wicked people all around them. They are advancing in their financial resources. They're advancing and going to all the parties that they want to go to. They're, they're able to do all the wickedness that they ever want, and it seems like it's unrestrained. And Asaph, the, one of the guys that's in charge of doing the music, he, he, God is patient with him and brings him to the, this realization. When you're looking at the outward and looking at the world, make sure you remember this. Nevertheless, Asaph, I am continually with you. God, you hold my right hand. You guide me with your counsel. And afterward, you will receive me to glory. Whom have I in heaven but you? And there is nothing on earth that I desire besides you. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. The timing of John's birth was perfect despite the age. Sure, is it possible that God could have made Mary and Joseph and Zachariah and Elizabeth and these two couples that be the same age so everything just works out just perfectly? Of course he could have done that, but who gets the glory in that? God is writing the story, not us, not them. God is working out an amazing story that when you look back on it, God alone receives worship and glory for it. Now, if the story were up to us, I think the tendency would be that we would write out all of the uncomfortable parts. The disappointments, loss of a loved one. We would probably, if somebody handed you the divine pen of reality and said, write whatever you want. You have a blank check, write the rest of your life. How would you write it? I don't think any of us would plan for disappointment, disaster, or trials. We would not write that in there. God writes the story. He walks with us through pain and sorrow. He carries us through uncertainties and unknowns. He has heard all of our prayers, and he has not forgotten a single one. And our God, who is good and is wise, will answer each one accordingly, so that when you look back on the story, it will be perfect. His grace will have carried you the whole way. I've really, if I'm quoting Tim Keller a lot, it's because I'm just, you know, I think I've had a renewed interest in his life ever since his passing. And one of the quotes that I've loved and and just, I just appreciate, I want to read that for you right now. Tim Keller says, in relation to prayer, quote, God will either give us what we ask or give us what we would have asked if we knew everything he knows. Right? So if, if by some miracle a finite human being made of flesh and blood could harness omniscience and see all of what life will, will transpire, we would understand we would want every single piece of it. That's the hard part. But we're not like that. And so we, ha- we have to lean into that God absolutely 100% knows what he's doing. And that's why we can commit our prayers to him. God will either give us what we ask or give us what we would have asked if we knew everything he knows. So, God never forgets his people. Why? 
God never forgets his prayers. And I think in this text, we've got a great example of that. And number two, God never forgets his promises. Malachi 4.5 is actually the, the prophecy that, that Luke, our author, actually picks up on and carries and reminds his audience, this is exactly where I'm getting this. I'm not making this up on the fly. This is, the prophet Malachi is actually, had said this long before I wrote it down. And so in Malachi 4.5, it says, Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. And he will turn the hearts of the fathers to their children and the hearts of the children to their fathers, lest I come and strike the land with a decree of utter destruction. So God never forgets prayers. And let me tell you this right now. God never forgets his promises. Luke 1, 16, 17 picks up on this. And here's what's at stake in this verse. I know it's a Christmas sermon, but it's going to get a little dark right now, okay? But there's hope. Here's what's at stake in this verse. The last verse in our Old Testament, God promises through his prophet Malachi that he's going to raise up another prophet. That's John the Baptist. And this prophet is going to point to the coming of the Messiah. And he's going to call sinners to repentance and faith in Christ. Through the Spirit of God, he's going to wake up people through his powerful preaching to let them know that the Messiah is coming. If God does not fulfill this promise to send this precursor to the Messiah, the only alternative, God says, this is God's words, not mine, the only alternative, God says, is a different kind of announcement, a different type of decree, a decree of utter destruction. And a decree, what is a decree exactly? A decree is, is God is an, an order coming down from a governing authority, okay? So you have God who is saying that the decree, if not for Christ and John the Baptist, the only alternative is punishment through judgment. And not one of us want that. Not one of us want that. In other words, you and I desperately want God to fulfill this promise to send John the Baptist, to make the way straight, to make the path clear, to point to Christ, to identify the Messiah, we desperately need that. And God sends that answer. This is what Christmas is all about. Yes, a weary world rejoices. Yes, O come, O come, Emmanuel. Christmas is a rejoicing time because the biggest enemy that you and I have is conquered in Jesus Christ. Although our sin is comprehensive, it affects every aspect of who we are. It's a spiritual disease with no human cure. We celebrate because although sin abounded, grace abounded all the more. Romans 5.20. So when you celebrate your Christmas traditions this year, go ahead, put up the tree. Put up the stockings on the mantle. Exchange gifts. Sing songs of praise to God. But may it all point to this fact we do not have to face judgment because the Messiah has come. That was John the Baptist's job when he came to point to Jesus. You don't have to suffer and pay the penalty for your sins. One is coming that will do that. And all of it. God's people had to wait over 400 years for this to come to pass. But despite how long they waited, God fulfilled his promises. God never forgets his promises. Can I say that again? God never forgets 
his promises. So here's the application for me and you. The promise that was for Luke's audience as well as mine and yours and John the Baptist's audience for that matter. Do you want a restored relationship with that loved one in your life? Do you want a restored relationship with your children? Do you want a restored relationship with God? Then hear this. The Lord has come. Jesus has come. He's the only basis by which any of us can have healthy relationships and certainly the only basis by which any one of us can stand before a holy God after we die and find admittance into heaven. It's on His righteousness alone, not ours. John, when he grows up, and John chapter 2, if you read, his message is clear. Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Whether you want a restored relationship with a close friend or a family member, or whether you were searching for a way to be rightly related to God, the answer is all the same. Jesus Christ has come. So God never forgets his promises. How can any of us get tired of this? If for no other reason that God, 400 years ago, said that he was going to come with a decree of utter destruction unless he sent John the Baptist, unless he sent the one to make the way. And time does not permit, but I want to give you one last thing here. God never tires of the good news. Will you look at Luke chapter 1, verse 18 with me? Luke chapter 1, verse 18, And Zechariah said to the angel, How shall I know this? For I am an old man, and my wife is advanced in years. And the angel answered him, I am Gabriel, who stands in the presence of God, and I was sent to speak to you and to bring you this good news. And behold, you will be silent and unable to speak until the day of these things take place, because you did not believe my words, which will be fulfilled in their time. Point number three, God never tires of the good news. It's right there in Gabriel's answer. I came to give you this good news. And this is, this is what blows my mind. You've got a guy, Zechariah, who's lived his life serving in the temple, studying God's word day in and day out, has a, an acute knowledge of what all of the temple articles and, and, and furniture in there, all, all designed uh, to point to. And you have a guy who's just blown away that the Lord would send Gabriel to speak to him and to make this announcement. And his answer is unbelief. But we're just like him. We have all the evidence that we could ever need right here in the scriptures. And yet we, we don't believe either many times. But God is so gracious. Way back in Genesis 3.15, we have the first uh, account of the gospel. And then 19 chapters later, we have God appearing before Abraham, telling him that one day through your line, there's going to come a Messiah that's going to bless all of the nations. Isaiah 9, 6 through 7 talks about a child that would be born. And then right there at the end of verse 7 of Isaiah chapter 9, it says, and this is what we want to hold on to. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. It's incredible that God never forgets any of his promises, probably because he loves the good news of the gospel way more than we would ever love it. We're the disbelieving ones.
So God never tires of the plan of the gospel. It's been God's plan since before creation to redeem people from their sins through the sacrifice of his son on the cross. And finally, I just want to point out point number four. God never tires in growing his people in sanctification. Maybe perhaps this morning you're just holding on with every fiber of your being to to believe. Well, God sees you and God hears you. And I, I, I think it's so incredibly interesting that you have a man who walked with God and Zechariah and Elizabeth walking with the Lord through all of this. And in verse 20, it says that he, he disbelieved. But then you drop down even further than that. And after Gabriel leaves and the announcement's made and he walks out of the temple... Verse 23 says, and when his time of service was ended, he went to his home. It's just so wonderful to me that, that, God, that here you have Zechariah experiencing God's grace in the moment of disbelief. He got a second chance, and he finished serving the Lord, and he went home. He was a, God, he was a man who followed Christ and knew where he needed to be. So God never tires of growing his people in sanctification. And I think to wrap it up here, church, God loves you in this time of season and wondering. You look around and you see all the people in Christmas and they're, they're excited to exchange presents. And, 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 but you're over here wondering if anybody sees you. And there's a lot of churches across the nation, they have what's called a blue Christmas It's a blue Christmas service for those that are hurting, that have lost loved ones, or they're yearning for something to take place. They have expectations for God to show up in a mighty way. So they hold a blue blue Christmas. And this, this season might be a blue Christmas for you. But can I remind you of one or two things? That God will never forget your prayers. God will never forget a promise he has made to you. God loves the gospel. He has rescued you. And finally, he never grows tired of walking alongside of us and watching us grow. We don't grow ourselves, guys. God is the one who grows us. And when it's all said and done, as one last quote I will leave you, is that when it's all said and done, we see him in glory, face to face, you know, so, so many of us maybe are afraid to see Jesus face to face, wondering what will be the reaction. But my friends, can I tell you one thing? God will be more excited to see you than you will be excited to see him. Because we, we, we come with so much expectation, so many hurts and trials and, and, and all, all sorts of things that we just, we're just curious about, wonder about. We wonder even in our our sin that we fight with from, from day one to the very end, we wonder, will God be happy to see us? And my friends, yes, he will be. Not because of anything that we've done, but because he's done it all. He will be excited to see you way more than we will be excited to see him. He will wipe away every tear from our eyes, and he will care for you. So this Christmas, will you remember that? that God will remember you and me. Let's pray. God, we thank you for uh, this text of Scripture. 
really the springboard of all of our hopes and expectations. Thank you that we have an example that even if we don't understand what God is, God is doing, God is absolutely 100% doing something in the background and we can trust him. We love you. We thank you that you loved us first, that you pulled us out of the miry pit and set us upon the rock and given us hope and given us a message and that message is Jesus. Thank you for all you do. Bless the remainder of our time together and our fellowship